Esther chapter 2. We're continuing on in our series through the book of Esther, a story of God's providence, a story of God's providence. And this morning, we're going to be looking at almost the entirety of Esther chapter 2, but we're going to stop at verse 18. So we're going to be looking at Esther chapter 2, beginning in verse 1 and looking through verse 18. I know you just sat down, but as you as you arrive there on your Bibles or your phones or your tablets or whatever you're using, I'd invite you to stand out of reverence for God's word as we read Esther chapter 2, beginning in verse 1 and reading through verse 18. So sometime later, King Ahasuerus' rage had cooled down and he remembered Vashti, what she had done and what was decided against her. The king's personal attendants suggested, let a search be made for a beautiful young virgin for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in each province of his kingdom so that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem at the fortress of Susan. Put them under the supervision of Haggai, the king's eunuch, keeper of the women, and give them the required beauty treatments. Then the young woman who pleases the king or the young woman who pleases the king will become queen instead of Vashti. This suggestion pleased the king, and he did accordingly. And in the fortress of Susa, there was a Jewish man named Mordecai, son of Hayer, son of Shammai, son of Kish, a Benjamite. He had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the other captives when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon took King Jeconiah of Judah into exile. Mordecai was the legal guardian of his cousin Hadassah, that is Esther, because she had no father or mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was extremely good looking. When her father and mother died, Mordecai had adopted her as his own daughter. When the king's command and edict became public knowledge, and when young women were gathered at the fortress of of Susa under Haggai's supervision, Esther was taken to the palace into the supervision of Haggai, keeper of the women. The young woman pleased him and gained his favor so that he accelerated the process of the beauty treatments and the special diet that she received. He assigned seven hand-picked female servants to her from the palace and transferred her and her servants to the harem's best quarters. Esther did not reveal her ethnicity or her family background because Mordecai had ordered her not to make them known. Every day, Mordecai took a walk in front of the harem's courtyard to learn how Esther was doing and to see what was happening to her. During the year before each young woman's turn to go to King Ahasuerus, the harem regulation required her to receive beauty treatments with oil of myrrh for six months and then with perfumes and cosmetics for another six months. And when the young woman would go to the king, she was given whatever she requested to take with her from the harem to the palace. She would go in the evening and in the morning she would return to a second harem under the supervision of the king's eunuch, Shazgaz. I said that wrong. I work on these pronunciations and I missed that one. Keeper of the concubines. She never went to the king again unless he desired her and summoned her by name. Verse 15, Esther was the daughter of Abihail the uncle of Mordecai who had adopted her as his own daughter. And when her turn came to go to the king, she did not ask for anything except what Haggai, the king's eunuch keeper of the women, suggested. Esther gained favor in the eyes of everyone who saw her. 
She was taken to King Ahasuerus in the palace on the tenth month, the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the other women. She won more favor and approval from him than did any of the other virgins. He placed the royal crown on her head and made her queen in place of Vashti. The king held a great banquet for all his officials and staff. It was Esther's banquet. He freed his provinces from tax payments and gave gifts worthy of the king's bounty. This morning, I want to talk a little bit on the idea of God's providence in our pain. God's providence in our pain. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that it contains. We thank you for what it reveals about you and the lessons it teaches us. God, I pray as we work through this passage of scripture that you would give eyes to see and ears to hear. Grant me physical and spiritual strength to preach your word faithfully to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. God's providence in our pain. This, this somewhat goes without saying, but there are times in life when we face trials and hardships, we face testing, even pain, and we know that it's for our good because we know the end goal. All right, let me give you a, a couple of examples of what I'm talking about. In, in college or maybe even high school, I, like many of you, had long nights of studying and being tired, feeling the pressure and pain of trying to stay awake to study for all of my classes finals that were about to happen at the exact same time. But I always knew that it was worth it because I knew what the goal was. I knew what the end result would be. The goal was to graduate, to get a degree, and ideally get a good job. Some of you have had painful medical tests or medical procedures, and it it wasn't pleasant, it hurt. There may have been a long recovery time, but you knew it was worth it because when all was said and done, you would have some answers about what was going on or perhaps even some relief from what was already known. Give you one more example. Some of us played on sports teams, whether little leagues, high school sports. Some of you were college athletes. And you, like me, may have hated practice. I hated running sprints. When I played soccer, it was, it was the bane of my existence to run these sprints. The pain and the cramps that inevitably ensued, but I always knew that it was worth it. Because I knew that if I endured that pain in practice, if I practiced hard, that it would serve me well when it was time to play the game. What I'm trying to say is that there are times in life when the pain, the struggle, the trial seems more bearable because we know what the end result will produce. You can manage when you know what's going to be on the other side. But for many of us, that's not where the struggle comes in when it relates to trial and pain and hardship. For most of us, myself included. The struggle with pain, the struggle with hardship, the struggle with trials and difficulties comes when we have no idea what the purpose is behind it. When when we don't know the exact reason or what the result will produce, or perhaps going even further, maybe we don't believe there is a purpose to our pain. Maybe we're going through it, we're in the throes of it, and we just honestly don't think that anything good will come out of this. A few years back, there was a rabbi named Dr. Jonathan Romain. He wrote an article entitled, Suffering Serves No Divine Purpose. And this is what what he said in the article. He says, let's be very clear. 
There is no divine purpose in suffering whatsoever. The idea of a God who sees some use in people being in physical pain or traumatized emotionally or having their lives wrecked by natural disasters or fellow human beings is a warped theology. He goes on, he says, self-inflicted suffering is even worse. And then he says this, I despair at those who claim that through suffering, God is teaching us something very meaningful whether of the unexpected powers of endurance or those affected uh, by those affected or the hidden depths of compassion of those who respond. Yes, these may be incidental byproducts of suffering. But he says this, I do not believe in a God who uses individual lives as a blackboard for lessons about the human condition. Now, if I'm honest with you in the midst of great pain and great struggle in my own life, I have been tempted to believe that that my pain is meaningless, that if God is truly good, then I would not be experiencing what I'm experiencing now. I have believed that there is no way that God could use this. And again, just being honest and transparent about myself, most often that type of thinking occurs in me when I think too highly of myself and too little of God. In other words, I think that God exists to serve me rather than I'm the created being who exists to serve God. But I think the bigger problem with that statement by Rabbi Romain is that if it's true, if God does not work in and through suffering, then we lose the gospel. We lose the gospel. What do we do with Isaiah 53 verses three through six when it speaks of Jesus and says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sickness. He carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. The punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. We all went away like sheep. We all have turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. If God does not work through suffering, that's a lie. But even more, if what Rabbi Romain contends for is true, then the Bible is simply untrustworthy. Because the Bible gives us evidence upon evidence upon evidence that in the midst of the darkest moments, in the midst of the greatest pain, in the midst of the most trying hardships, that God is at work. And Esther chapter two tells us that story. Because in Esther two, we see God's providence in the midst of great So let me try to recap where we are in the story a little bit in case some of you missed chapter one. I want to try to recap and point out some significant details in chapter two before we dive into some lessons that it teaches us about God's providence and pain. Last week, we we looked at chapter one and the scene was set for us, right? We were introduced to to some of the major players. We were introduced to King Ahasuerus or by his Greek name, King Xerxes. And King Xerxes ruled wide and far. He was powerful. He was rich. He was wealthy. He had just gotten done throwing two parties that lasted a total of 187 days. Wild parties. 
Right? The Bible wanted to make it known that, that, that alcohol was flowing, people were drinking, and, and the king was drunk. And towards the very end of these 187 days, as he's drunk, the king makes this request of Queen Vashti. He says, listen, I want you to come and parade your beauty before all of my guests. But Queen Vashti did what was unexpected. She refused to go to the king. She said, no, I won't do that. And the king was furious. And the king, in his drunkenness, thought that, man, if the queen can do that to me, what's going to happen to all the other households in my kingdom? How many people are going to lose control? So he says, I know what I'll do. I'll make a decree. And in this decree, I'm going to, I'm going to banish Queen Vashti. She is no longer to be my queen. And I'm going to let everybody know that that's what happens if you defy your husband. That's what happens if you defy a king. And so he follows through. He banishes her. And then as we pick up here in, in chapter 2, we, we read that the king has regretted his decision. Nevertheless, the stage is set for a new queen to come into to place. We just read the story in Esther chapter 2 of Esther's ascension to royalty. And though it... Though it only took 18 verses to tell the story of Esther becoming queen, this covers a span of nearly four years. So from the time that the king banished Vashti to the time that Esther is crowned as queen, four years have passed. But again, our story here in chapter two begins after the party. King Ahasuerus, he's cooled off about the slight of Vashti. And the implication there is in verse one is that he regretted his decision. He, he remembered Vashti and remembered what she had done. And the implication is we and it's implied through the response of the servants is that he regrets this decision because now a king doesn't have a wife. He doesn't have a queen. And, and, and the attendants picked up on this in verse two. And so so maybe their motivation for the suggestion of a new queen, maybe it was because they genuinely just didn't want to see their king sad. Maybe maybe they cared about. Ahasuerus so much that they wanted him to be happy. Or maybe it was a self-serving interest. Maybe these servants knew that if the king's sad, he's going to be a difficult guy to work with. And they wanted to avoid that. But for whatever the reason, the attendants, they make the suggestion unsolicited to the king. Remember back in chapter one, when the king was trying to figure out what to do, he called his wise men and they sat and had a council. But here the servants just go to the king without being asked. And they say, listen, king, we got an idea for you. Here's the plan. Why don't we go around to all of your provinces and we will find the most beautiful virgins that we can find and we will bring them to you. And then you can sift through them and figure out if one of these would be a fitting queen for you. So the king agrees. Commissioners are sent throughout the provinces and all of the beautiful virgins are gathered together. But what's interesting is that there in the very city, in the very fortress where the king lives, there's already this man named Mordecai. And Mordecai, we were introduced to him here in, in chapter two. And we learn that Mordecai was a man of conviction because when, when his uncle died, when his aunt died, he adopted his cousin Esther. And so he became her cousin father. 
He treated her like a daughter. Mordecai is probably a little older. You see, we have to remember that in this story, and it adds to some of the pain of the story, Esther is most likely between 12 and 14 years old as this is happening. And so so Mordecai, being the noble, the honorable man, understands the law, understands the expectation, wants to honor his family. He adopts Esther as his own. And the Bible tells us that Esther, Esther was a beautiful woman. So when the commissioners come, they see Esther and they decide that's one that we should take to the palace. Perhaps she might please the king. Esther's not asked if she wants to go. Esther's not asked if she wants to be a part of this, this plot to please the king. But Esther goes to the palace and she's taken to the harem's quarters place where all of these young virgins would be kept and she's placed under the care of a eunuch and see it was the eunuch's job to evaluate these women first and to prepare them to meet the king and and one of the things that we learn is that Esther Esther carried herself well because she gained the favor of this eunuch so much so that the eunuch wanted her to win the favor of the king. So he's giving her special insight. He gives servants to help care for her because, because he sees something in Esther. So Esther's in the harem's quarters and prior to her turn to go before the king, it involved a year of beauty treatments and preparation, a year of preparation to go and see the king. After this year, they had to wait. They sat and they waited for the opportunity to meet the king. And ideally, for some to please the king. Now, throughout this time of waiting, we're going to come back to this in a moment. But there are two things that are very significant in our story that I want to bring out now and we'll flesh out a little bit later. Notice verse 10. It says that Esther did not reveal her ethnicity or her family background because Mordecai had ordered her not to make them known. Now, there's some speculation as to why this counsel was given by Mordecai. The the book of Esther doesn't directly tell us, but what we learn in some later chapters is, especially in the city of Susa, there seemed to be some animosity towards Jews. That's not something we're unfamiliar with in the story of Scripture, that people didn't like the people of God. And so Mordecai, in his wisdom, for whatever reason, tells Esther, make sure they don't know that you're a Jew. Don't tell them. It might not go well for you. Jews weren't highly respected by many. They were exiles and captives. So most likely Mordecai here is trying to protect Esther when she is beyond his help. But there's something else that I want you to notice as well. Notice verse 11. It says that every day, four years, every day, Mordecai took a walk in front of the harem's courtyard to learn how Esther was doing and to see what was happening to her. It speaks to to Mordecai's nobility here. He was invested in Esther. He cared for her and his family. He loved her. And every day for four years, he went to check on her. Again, we'll come back to that in the morning. I just want to, or in just a moment, I want to draw that out and and we'll flesh it out in a few moments. But Esther, Esther's in the palace. She's waiting for whenever the king will come to her to, or forever, whenever the time will come for her to be summoned to go in front of the king. Now, we, we understand a little bit about what it meant to go before the king. And Esther, 
chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, it says that when the young woman would go to the king, she was given whatever she requested to take with her from the harem to the palace. So pause there. So these women, before they went to the king, could request anything and everything and take it with them to meet the king. Ideally, this would be a request that would help them, if they chose rightly, gain the favor of the king. Some probably used it to to get some nice jewelry that they maybe didn't have. Maybe some would, would ask for a particular food to be taken to try to, 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 to entice the king. But the, the, the women, before they went before the king, they could ask for one thing, whatever they wanted, and take it with them. When you keep reading, it says she would go in the evening and in the morning she would return to a second harem under the supervision of the king's eunuch. I'm not going to try to say his name again. Keeper of the concubines. She never, listened to this, she never went to the king again unless he desired her and summoned her by name. So let me try to spell this out in a way that's not over the top since we got kiddos, but in a way that you'll understand. Because I mentioned this to you last week. This is not a romantic story. I said that this is not the veggie tale story where people put on a talent show for the king and try to be the one that the king likes the best. This is not like the movie One Night with the King where Esther is found out to be able to read. And so she sits with the king and reads the biblical story of Jacob and Rachel. That's not that's not what this is. This is a woman. This is let's say it correctly, a child who was taken from her home against her wishes and forced to have sexual relations with the king in hopes that maybe she would gain his favor. And you might be thinking, well, why would she want to gain his favor? Because if she doesn't, she lives the rest of her life in a harem, never to marry, never to love, never to be around her family. She's tossed aside like a piece of trash. Because if that favor is not won, the women are not freed to return home. They're not allowed to go about their lives. They're forced to live in the palace as a potential mistress for the king or someone who the king gives them to. Esther is in a horrible situation. Esther is in a painful situation because you have this young Jewish girl who has maintained her purity, who has kept the law, who has honored God, and it is being forced away from her by a pagan king. This is rape. This is the equivalent of sex trafficking. This is sin. And yet this is the situation that God allows Esther to be in. I told you last week that some people have struggled with the book of Esther, and, and this is part of the reason why. This is a hard one to reckon with. Why would a good God, who can deliver his people however he wants, place a girl who is trying to be obedient to the law in a position like this? As you continue on in the story, verse 16 tells us that she was taken to King Ahasuerus in the palace in the 10th month, the month of Tibet in the seventh year of his reign. 
As I mentioned, this is four years after Vashti has been removed as queen. As Esther 2 tells us, the king ends up loving Esther. She won his favor that night. And Esther is made queen. As I mentioned, this is a story of pain and hardship, and it forces us to reckon with the wickedness of sin, yet even in Esther 2. We see the beauty of God's hand working in all of it. In the midst of all the pain, God is not absent. And in chapter 2, we learn from the story of Esther some significant truths. Truths that were true for her and that are true today as it relates to God's providence in our pain. Here's the first truth that I want you to see. Not a moment of our pain is wasted. Not a moment of our pain is wasted. Let me me say it another way. God is always at work in our pain. Esther's story is full of pain. It's full of pain. We learn in verses four or verses five and six why they're in Susa in the first place. And it's painful because Mordecai, Mordecai's in the line of Kish, a Benjamite, and Kish had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the other captives when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon took King Jeconiah of Judah into exile. So the reason they're even in Susa is because in generations past, with King Nebuchadnezzar, you remember the book of Daniel, we studied that recently, they were taken as part of that exile, the same exile that Daniel would have been in. They're captives away from the promised land of God. They've been conquered as painful. But then we learn in verse seven why Esther's in the care of Mordecai in the first place, because Mordecai was the legal guardian of his cousin Hadassah, that is Esther, because she had no father or mother. And then at the end of verse seven, when her father and mother died, Mordecai had adopted her as his own daughter. So you have Esther, who is in a place that is foreign to her, a land that is not hers. And then her mother dies, then her father dies, and she's adopted by her cousin, who is acting in, her, in their stead as a faithful father. Her life is filled with pain. But then you get to verse 8, and she's taken away from Mordecai and forced to go to the palace. I mean, I can't imagine with an understanding that at some point, regardless of what I want, regardless of what I desire, regardless of the fact that I have fought for purity and holiness, at some point I'm going to be forced to sleep with this man I don't know. Knowing that there is a possibility that she could be discarded like so many others. And we can't forget As Esther is going through all of this, she hasn't read chapter 10 of her story yet. She doesn't know the end result. And based on what we see in Esther, God never tells her. God doesn't say it's going to be okay, Esther, because I'm actually going to use this to save your life and the lives of all my people. Esther doesn't know this. So I wouldn't be surprised if at some point sitting in that palace by herself, Esther asked the question, what's the point, God? What's the point? See, Esther's in a place that so many of us know well. She's in the midst of pain. 
with no idea what the result's going to be. But here's the good news. Esther might not know. You might not know. But God knows the result. And God has told us that we can trust him as he brings about the result. Remember Romans 8.28, it's more than just a cliche verse. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. That's either categorically true or it's categorically false. Either God is at work in every situation in the lives of those who have been called according to his purpose to bring about something good. He never says it will always feel good. He never says it will always be good. But either God is working in every situation, in every pain, in every hardship to bring about what is good and right or God is a liar. And what we see throughout the story of Esther is that not an ounce of her pain was wasted. God was working in the midst of it to bring about, again, not only her deliverance, but the deliverance of the people of God. But here's what I want you to get this morning. here's, Here's kind of the practical belief that I need you to have. Your pain, the pain you might be feeling right now, is never meaningless. The struggle is never meaningless. In all of it, God is working. And I don't know to presume, I don't presume to know the specific specifics of what's going on in your life. I don't presume that you know the specifics of what's going on in my life. But scripture tells me enough that I know that I can trust God when things go crazy. Because James tells me to consider it a great joy whenever you experience various trials because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and that endurance, when it has its full effect, you will be perfect and complete and lacking nothing. Peter tells me, don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you to test you as if something unusual is happening to you. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Jesus so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. The author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus suffered outside the gate so that he might sanctify people with his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing his disgrace, for we do not have an enduring city here. Instead, we seek the one that is to come. Romans tells us, Paul tells us in Romans, not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And here it is. And hope does not put us to shame. What I want you to get this morning is that there is no pain so strong, no trial so long, no hardship so unexpected that it can stop God from working for our good and his glory in the midst of it. And when we believe that, it changes the way we approach our struggles. If indeed God is working in the midst of our pain. Oh, and this is so hard. Then our chief goal should not be to avoid pain at all costs. Rather, when the pain comes, 
which it inevitably will, and we all know it. We hold on to a deep-rooted confidence that our God is doing something. I think that what, that's what Paul's getting at in 2 Corinthians 12, when he says that I had a thorn in my flesh, right? Even that imagery, that picture, like whatever it was, it hurt. And he had a pain in his flesh. And he said, I mean, it's a picture of pain. And he says, listen, I pleaded with God for three times to take this away from me. I wanted the pain to end. But God didn't do it. And instead, God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. Now, in that moment, Paul had two options. Believe that God is sufficient in the midst of pain. Or to believe that God was lying. But listen to how Paul responds. Paul says, therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weakness so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What Paul is saying is that if my pain is a conduit through which God can show off. And Paul says, I believe it is. And Paul says, so be it. So be it. I mentioned this a moment ago. I think we can get caught in the trap of believing, especially when we are going through it, that God exists to serve us. We lose a little bit of that creator-created distinction. We didn't create God. We don't get to tell him his purposes and how he should run and dictate our lives. If God is God and we are the created being, then he has the right to use us however he wants. But the testimony of scripture is that God will not use us for our for bad. Anything that happens in our life, if we are called according to his purpose, is for our good and potentially the good of those around us. Now, please hear me. I'm not saying that this real confidence makes the pain any less painful. I'm not saying this to make light of the struggle you may be in right now, the hardship and the pain you may be facing. But what I'm trying to tell you is don't lose heart because God has not left you When things hurt, God has not abandoned you. And whether you see it now or not, God is working for what will ultimately be your good. Pain is not easy. It's not fun. But God is doing something. But even in Esther, too, we have a little bit of hope as to how we can endure that. Well, here's the second truth that I want you to see this morning. It's that pain is not meant to be endured in isolation. Pain is not meant to be endured in isolation. Let me draw you back to verse 7 and then verses 10 and 11. So again, in verse 7, it says, Mordecai was the legal guardian of his cousin, 
Hadassah, that is Esther, because she had no father or mother. Again, the end of the verse, when, when her father and mother and died, Mordecai adopt, had adopted her as his own daughter. And then you get to verses 10 and 11. Esther did not reveal her ethnicity to, or her family background because Mordecai had ordered her not to make them known. Every day, Mordecai took a walk in front of the harem's courtyard to learn how Esther was doing and to see what was happening to her. I don't want you to miss Mordecai in this story. Yeah, Esther's pain is real, but so is Mordecai's. But Mordecai is an example to us of what it looks like to be present in the midst of someone else's pain. When Esther was orphaned, Mordecai stepped into her pain by adopting her. When Esther was taken, taken to be just another woman at the king's disposal, Mordecai stepped into her pain by counseling her on how to stay alive. When Esther was alone and uncertain about her future, Mordecai stepped into her uncertainty by checking on her every single day for what was four years. Mordecai refused to allow Esther to face life's uncertainty and pain by herself. We all need Mordecai's in our life. In the midst of pain, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of struggle and trial, there is a temptation. And I believe some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. There is a temptation that at the first inkling of pain to isolate yourself and think you have to walk through it by yourself. That before I can be of any good, before I can be around anybody, I got to figure this out and get through this. There is a temptation for whatever reason to believe that we always have to look like we have it all together. Can we this morning just, just acknowledge that none of us have it together? Not a one of us has figured this thing out. But it doesn't mean we don't have confidence. Let me use Mordecai as an example to challenge you with two things as it relates to this truth. That, we don't, that, that pain is not meant to be endured in isolation. Here, here's the first challenge that I have for you. Find a Mordecai. Find a Mordecai. You know, we say this so much at New Breaks. We believe it and it's true. You and I were built to live in community. We were created in Genesis to live lives in fellowship. Not just when things are going well. Not just when the big game is happening. Not at the birthday and at the wedding and at the celebration. We are called to live in community when the bottom falls out. When things are at their worst, we cannot always fight on our own. And we were never intended to. You know, there's a story in Exodus that I love. I'm not, I'm not as old as some of your pastors. Amen. Who, by God's grace, is about to turn 70 this year. Praise God. But the longer I live, the more there's this one story in Exodus that just means more and more to me. The longer I pastor, the story in Exodus means so much to me. Because in Exodus 17, something interesting happens. Moses. Moses is leading the people and an army comes upon them to attack them. And something amazing happens is that as Moses is able to keep his hands raised, the Israelites win. But you see, there's a problem. 
Moses wasn't made to keep his arms up forever. And in Exodus chapter 17, verse 12, we read this and it's so profound that when Moses' hands grew heavy, they took a stone and put it under him and he sat down on it. And then Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other so that his hands remained steady until the sun went down. There is pain in this life that no matter how strong you think you are, you will never be able to endure on your own. Can you listen to me when I say you were never meant to? Here's the second challenge. Not only find a Mordecai, be a Mordecai. You may recall from our study through the book of 1 John, which we finished just a little while ago, this, this passage, 1 John 4, verses 7 through 8, where it says, Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is Love as Christians, one of our responsibilities is to love the body well. And I'm just going to be honest. That means a whole lot more than just showing up on Sunday mornings. That means a whole lot more than going to the birthday parties. The weddings, the celebrations, the graduation, and we should do that. We see John's writing and calling us to love in a way that Jesus is love, that Jesus loved because The same John who wrote this, I believe, because I believe they're the same person, also recorded this in John 15, 13, that no one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. You see, the kind of love that we're called to as brothers and sisters is not merely the celebrate kind of love. It's the hold the arms up when they can't hold them up anymore kind of love. And it's going to hurt you and it's going to cost you time and money and attention and effort. You're going to have to lay down family time. You're going to have to lay down work time. But, but that's the call to love as Jesus loved because you and I were never meant to endure pain and isolation. I pray that it is never said of this church that people suffered silently and by themselves. I pray even more that it's never said that people suffered vocally and by themselves. You and I must be willing to step into one another's pain because ultimately it works like for the sermon points, but it's actually not being a Mordecai. See, Mordecai is just another picture of Jesus. Because let's go back again to that passage that I read as we started about Jesus from Isaiah 53. That he himself bore our sickness. He carried our pains. He was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was placed on him. We are healed by his wounds. The Lord punished him for the iniquity of us all. Mordecai is good, but Mordecai is just a another picture of a better one. Pain hurts, but we were never meant to go through it on our own. Here's the final truth, final lesson that we learn. And it 
It overlaps some with the first truth, but I wanted to kind of give it its own. God is sovereign over sinful people who cause you pain. God is sovereign, please hear me, even over the sinful people who cause you pain. King Ahasuerus sinned against Esther. He sinned against Esther when he judged her worth by her beauty. He sinned against Esther when he took her from her family. He sinned against Esther thinking that he had the right to demand of her that she come and perform one evening. He sinned against every one of the women who he saw. And that sin left a wake of destruction. I understand, as I mentioned a moment ago, the struggle that some people have with Esther. And even this week, being transparent again, I found myself asking the question, did it have to be this way, God? Did it have to be at the expense of Esther's dignity and purity? Because we'll see a little bit later in chapter four that Mordecai seems to believe that if it wasn't Esther, it would have been somebody else because he said God could have delivered in any way. And if it's not you that he uses, he's going to use somebody to deliver. And so so I'm thinking to myself, well, well, why not do something else, God? But if I'm honest, that question doesn't spring out of nowhere as I look at Esther too. The reason I've asked that, I asked that question is because I've asked it so many times in my own life. Why in the world would a good God allow this bad thing to happen to me? We can be honest for a minute, right? We've asked that question. Why in the world would a good God allow this bad thing to happen to me? And the more I thought about, and I'm telling you, I was, I was asking this question up until last night. This, this part was added at about 1130 last night because I was still like, how do we deal with that? And we have to. And the Lord reminded me last night sitting in my computer. That why would a good God allow this bad thing to happen? It's not the right question. The better question is. Why would a holy God let anything good happen at all? Why would a holy God let anything good happen at all? Because if our sin is what God says it is, and if our sin has caused what God says that it has caused, you and I deserve no good thing. Our sin is nothing less than a total rebellion against and rejection of the goodness and love of God. Let's not make light of it. Right? It's not a little white lie. It's not a small indiscretion. It is, as one of my old professors said, it is cosmic treason against the true king of all eternity. And the only reason that anything good happens in your life or in my life at all is because God in his mercy restrains the full measure of someone's wickedness. You see, we have to remember that when sinful people sin, And when that sin really hurts, it's not God's fault. God is not doing it. Now, yes, we have to draw a distinction. He allows it. 
But he is not the one committing the offense. He is not the one committing the sin. And for whatever reason, there are moments in time and in people's life where he allows us to feel the weight of not only our own sin, but also the sin of other people. But the promise still stands. I will work all things together for good for those who love you or who love me and are called according to my purpose. He is allowing it, but he is not guilty of any wrong. It's going to come up again because Mordecai references it later on, but I'm reminded of Joseph. Listen, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. I'm going to wrap this thing up, but hold with me for these last few things. Our hope is not found in the hope that bad things won't happen. Our hope is that when they happen, God is still on his throne. He has never left us. He will never forsake us. And he surely will not abandon us in our sorrow. Our God is so good that when others mean evil, Our God is so in control that when others mean evil, God can say, watch this and use it for good. Because God is always in control. You know how I know this with beyond a shadow of a doubt? Because the gospel declares it to me. Because here you have a man, Jesus Christ, God in flesh, who had no sin. He never talked back to his mama. He never cussed out loud or under his breath. He never lied. He never looked at someone with lust in his heart. He was truly the only person who deserved to feel none of the effects of sin. And yet he felt the most. He was sinned against and he felt the full weight of that sin. But make no mistake. At no point was the Son of God or God the Father out of control. Make no mistake, nobody took his life from him. Because Jesus himself says in John 10, 18, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down and I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from the Father when the people and the rulers sinned against the Son of God. It was not the absence of God's control. It was allowed by him. And he willingly laid down his life so that you and I could experience the greatest good that could ever happen. We could be made right with God. In the midst of the most sinful actions ever committed, God was doing the greatest work the world would ever see. Even when the world sinned against Jesus and it hurt, Jesus won our salvation. When the world thought that he was gone forever, Jesus rose from the dead and that sin had lost its power. Yes, it hurts, but we know that we have victory through Christ Jesus. That victory is offered to anyone and everyone who by faith and repentance trusts in Jesus's work on the cross. 
And the gospel declares to us that God is sovereign even when sinful people act in sinful ways. And people's sin is still under the providence and sovereignty of God. The reason that this gives us hope is because as Christians, if that gospel is true, it means that we can embrace even our pain as an evidence that God is still working for our good. And if God can work in the midst of that great pain and sin that happened to Jesus, surely he can work in the midst of my lesser pain. It hurts. It's tough. But God is on his throne. That's a God worth trusting. When it goes sideways, when it hurts, when it's tough, if that God that we see throughout Scripture and in Esther and in the gospel, if that is truly God, then he is worth following even when things get tough. So brothers and sisters, don't lose heart. Don't give up. Because God's providence is at work, even in our pain. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, gracious God, I thank you that you are always at work. You're not only at work when good things happen, but you are at work when the horrible happens, the tough happens, the sinful happens. God, you are in control even when we are in the midst of pain. And God, it can be hard to trust you in the midst of pain. It, it is an ever-present temptation to let our pain drown out our praise. But I pray that we would trust and believe you when you say that you work all things together for good, for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. I pray that you would remind us that the promise of salvation is not a promise of a pain-free life. But the promise of salvation is a promise of eternity with you. Where one day you will wipe away every tear. There will be no more pain and sickness and death. There will be no more sin. And so God, I pray in this moment for my brothers and sisters who might be sitting in front of me listening with real pain in their lives. God, I pray that they would see you as good. That they would hold fast to you and not judge the measure of your worth by the degree of their pain. Remind them of the gospel, of the truth, that we are sanctified through suffering, not only our own, but because Jesus suffered for us. And help us to cling to him, our big brother who is able to sympathize with our weakness and our temptation and our pain because he endured more than we could ever imagine for our sake, because you love us. So give us grace to trust you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.